Hello, welcome to the Nebraska Complement Podcast. I'm John Ream. So, hope everybody's taken down their pandemic decorations and put up their protest decorations. It's a little kind of a variation of a meme I saw on Facebook. But anyway, uh, unless you've been under, today's June 7th, and for the last about a week and a half, news about the COVID pandemic has been overshadowed by protests over the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, police brutality in general. And those protests have spread from Minneapolis all over the country. Uh, even here in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, last weekend, we had, a, in early this week, we had curfew. We had the police shooting tear gas at people which I can't remember ever happening. I think the last kind of violent protest we had in Lincoln, Nebraska, involved a uh, tailgate party back in 2014 before the Nebraska-Miami football game, but that's another story. So so I guess the point of all this is, and I'll talk about the protests later in the pod, but the point of this intro is that Obviously, to anybody listening to this, the sort of focus of media attention has gone off of COVID and towards the the protests or, or, or towards the protests. So, and in my mind, but the problem with that, not that there's a problem with with focusing on the civil unrest. In the protests, and not that maybe the protests couldn't be good for workplace rights. I really do think they could be. Again, I'll talk about that later. But there's less focus on the issues, the legal issues surrounding COVID-19. And there's there's a couple of problems with that. One, um, as was reported in USA Today today, and actually USA Today is starting to do a little bit of good investigative reporting. According to USA Today, um, COVID exposure among packing house workers continues to increase despite social distancing, despite whatever protective gear the plants are allegedly giving to their employees. So COVID is still a workplace safety issue. And there's all sorts of reports out there that, you know, with the reopening in, in most places, people starting to wear less masks, that COVID it, it could ramp back up or is in fact ramping back up. It really isn't going anywhere. So COVID continues to be an occupational uh, health issue. Problem with that is now that, you know, there's less attention on it, know the lobbying campaigns for to get so, so businesses can get immunity from COVID liability whether it's to their customers or to their workers whether it's in civil court or even in workers compensation courts that effort is still ongoing and in my opinion well Dodds is my it's my podcast but the lack of attention towards COVID is only going to help industry efforts to immunize 
companies from legal liability. You know, there's a I read something in Politico this week. There's a big um, Republican-affiliated firm that is lobbying for it, and some states have started to pass immunity legislation related to COVID. Um, and, you know, I, I've blogged about this. You know, there's President Trump's aborted executive order, which which isn't going to go anywhere. But there again, there's going to be federal legislation. So, and it's, you know, is it, primarily right now coming from the Republican side or the conservative side. And, you know, there's an election coming up and things aren't looking good for them right now. And so it's very possible that in 2021, we're going to have more Democratic legislators, a Democratic president, and you know, maybe a Democratic Senate. So, but is that going to stop the immunity for employers? No, it, it might slow things down a little bit. But one thing that I do want to talk about is I would kind of say the a way of looking at safety that would be helpful to industry that is sort of geared towards liberals and centrists and people who, you know, at least for American purposes or Nebraska purposes, consider themselves left, which, you know, is like, you know, bluntly like moderate Republican. But I want to talk about safetyism Um, and you know, safetyism is not an occupational safety concept. The term safetyism came in one of these uh, about two years ago by an author named Jonathan Haidt, um, where in his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which is another one of these tomes about kids being oversensitive and sensitive snowflakes who get offended by being exposed to ideas they don't like. And so that's where the concept of safetyism comes from. So, again, safetyism has zero to do with workplace safety. You know, the coddling of the American mind is about, you know, sensitive college kids. It's not about, you know, people working in packing plants or retail workers or exposed to violence overnight or warehouse workers or you know, food delivery people. I mean, this isn't about people that are exposed to hazards. This is about, you know, elite college kids. But anyway, safetyism has been repurposed for, you know, to in service of the, you know, the, the reopening and industry wanting to get to, to get back to work. And there is a really crappy op-ed and the New York Times last week that, you know, safetyism isn't, isn't about safetyism. And in the way that it framed it was, is that it looked at safety, not again, as, a, as, a, as actually safety, you know, safety as a material condition, but the perception of safety as it relates to political rhetoric. And, you know, well, you know, some people, you know, some people overvalue safety. You know, there's the people who, during the you know the lockdown, people during COVID, during during COVID crisis, and then there's the people who you want to reopen, 
And what it does is, you know, one, it makes safe, you know, it, it takes away from safety as a primary value. It takes the focus of safety away from occupational safety and it becomes something else to discuss. It's really a matter of language rather than a matter of material, actual conditions for people. So, and I think it also diminishes safety as an absolute value. And it looks, you know, it looks at those who are advocating for workplace safety. It's a convenient way to frame those people like me as extremists. It's like, you know, for example, um, because we have to balance the issues of safety, you know, with the occupational safety, with the needs of workplace, you know, with, with businesses, with packing houses. And I think that this, again, waters down the value of safety in a way that is attractive to liberals, you know, especially older liberals, Democrat, you know, Democrats, more moderate Democrats. And it's something that, again, safetyism has nothing to do actually with physical safety or occupational safety. You know, this is something that has to do with, again, essentially younger people, you know, allegedly being oversensitive in a, in a college setting. So, Again, this value of this, it, I would look, especially going forward, uh, there's going to be a lot of, I think, a lot of talk about safetyism and how people are overly fixated on safety. And we're going to hear more and more of that as I think business and industry looks to persuade lawmakers and media people and, you know, God, thought leaders in persuading them that they need protections from lawsuits related to COVID-19. So anyway, in the next segment, I'm going to talk a little about, talk a little bit about some of the um, connections between the civil rights protests and the protests going on right now and some issues in uh, workplace law. Talk to you next segment. So I don't do police misconduct or police brutality cases. Uh, police brutality cases, police misconduct cases are often called civil rights cases, which they are because they're based off of civil rights laws. At least federally, there's uh, 42 uh, United States Section 1983. Um, but I do do civil rights laws in that I do employment law and employment law is, you know, the anti-discrimination laws are also civil rights laws. And, you know, some of those laws are found, you know, near, you know, in the same place of the, uh, of the United States Code. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the parallels in the uh, weaknesses of laws against police misconduct and civil rights laws against police misconduct and civil rights laws prohibiting or limiting or controlling uh, racial discrimination in the workplace. First of all, I want to bring up the point that passing reforms is, is, is not 
going to change people's hearts. It's not going to change people's feelings towards towards the police. It's not going to change the way people look at things. People are still going to be angry in communities where there's a history of, you know, bad relations with the police or, or misconduct or brutality by the police towards these communities. I mean, that's not going to change that. As an example, you know, George W. H. W. Bush signed the Civil Rights Act of 1991 and 1990, which actually, you know, improved racial, made laws against racial discrimination better in this country. And we still had the Los Angeles riots in 1992 after the acquittal of the police officers who uh, beat Rodney King. So, but if these laws and reforms are substantive and they're implemented and they're enforced over time, yeah, I think people will, you know, there will be less, break. you know, there will be less tension. You know, people will be treated better. And I think over the long term, yeah, implementing and enforcing these laws will make a difference but and it's it's I don't see it doing a lot to take the edge off of anger right now but when I say implement and enforce that's not what happens with our civil rights laws now one thing that particularly with civil rights laws that I wrote about when I say civil rights laws regard, regarding police misconduct wrote a blog post last week, published it on Monday, where I talk about qualified immunity with police misconduct cases. And qualified immunity basically says that if a police officer is acting within the course and scope of their duties, it's almost impossible to sue them for police misconduct. So, and then qualified immunity is a variation on sovereign immunity, which is an old English law concept that you can't sue the sovereign, you can't sue the king, and police officers as being an arm of the local sovereign, you know, enjoy that kind of protection. But, you know, I've written a a blog post in the past about employers having something like a variation of or their own version, or a private sovereign immunity for suits on racial discrimination based on that. I mean, because under federal Title VII, which is the federal law outlawing racial discrimination, employees are required to exhaust administrative remedies, which means filing something with the NEOC, and there's similar, or with the EEOC, or the federal agency. And there's similar requirements when you file a claim against a government agency. So you have those protections. And we don't necessarily have qualified immunity in employment law, but we have lots of rules. And I think the main one when it comes to discrimination is is, is that a certain level of discrimination is tolerated 
on even under even under federal law and state law and most state laws too, including Nebraska, because in order to win a racial discrimination case federally or in Nebraska, you have to show that discrimination, racial discrimination or any other type of discrimination was a motivating or substantial factor in the decision. So if it's merely just a contributing factor, which, you know, some laws like the OSHA whistleblower laws have contributing factor causation. Um, if it's just contributing factor, it can be one of many factors, but that's not enough for a racial discrimination case under Title Seven or under Nebraska civil rights law. It has to be motivating factor. So, again, a certain level of racism is tolerated under the law, and that's assuming that you're covered under Title Seven or the Nebraska Fair Employment Practices Act. Because if you're under 15 employees, you're not covered. I mean, Omaha and Lincoln have their own. A lot of cities have their own municipal ordinances, but about 60% of the population in Nebraska, two thirds. You know, does probably if if you work an employee outside of Omaha and Lincoln and they have less than fifteen employees, you're not covered by it. So, lots of exclusions from those coverage of those laws, and even if you're covered under those laws, there's a certain tolerance of racial discrimination under the law. Just like in under civil rights laws, there's a certain tolerance for brutality or violence by the police so long as it's within the course of 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 their duties so and again what i think about is like in certain cases like in the george floyd case at least with people that i know who do civil rights laws would say that mr floyd's family uh would, would would certainly probably have a good civil rights case against minneapolis against minneapolis police department but you know, there's lots of other cases, you know, where, the, where, where, the, where it's not videotaped or where maybe somebody's injured rather than just killed or where, where, where the police can, can get away with that. And that makes people angry. Kind of the same way with, with employment law is I've taken calls in racial discrimination cases and you're, you're looking, I'm, I'm talking to somebody and I'm listening to what's going on and at least you can pick up that race is part of what's going on, but maybe there's other things and you don't always want to get involved in cases like that, you know, just because, you know, that with the causation factor, there is a, you know, having to prove motivating factor versus just to, just you happen to show it's a determinative factor, a major factor versus a minor factor or a factor makes things difficult. And in fact, um, back in March, the Supreme Court raised the um, causation standard in one civil rights law, uh, Section 1981, to but for, you know, the the most important cause of it. So, and that's a law that applies to African Americans and the advantage of... Um, using 1981 over Title VII is you have a longer statute of limitations and you don't have to file something with a federal agency. So so in a way, 
very recently, the uh, amount of allowable racism was increased by the Supreme Court. I don't know how much that had to do with the protests that are going on right now. Probably not a lot, but over the long term that, you know, the constant, you know, slights, the terminations, the abuse in the workplace, the abuse from the police that is more or less allowable, it adds up and people can't take it and they they rise up and, and they protest. So, and some of that may be going, you know, I, I think is is going on right now. So, anyway, so I think those are the parallels between police misconduct, police brutality cases, and employment law cases, and why, you know, the our laws are inadequate and why they need to be reformed, but why those reforms, again, probably aren't going to change emotions and opinions much in the uh, short term. But again, if they're implemented and enforced over the long term, they will change things. But the problem is that our federal judiciary and the states who follow them may water down those protections. So anyway, in the final segment, I'm going to talk, try to talk a little bit about some of the connections, possible connections between the protests for against police brutality in some of the walkouts that are still going on in regards to workplace safety in COVID. Finally, I'd like to talk about the connections between these civil rights protests and workplace rights because at least on the face of it, it doesn't look like there's a lot in common between the two. So before I get to the connections, basic, in a way, it's maybe easier to talk about some of the disconnections between them because there, when I see things that are disconnected, they draw, that's what draws my attention. I mean, when I say disconnected, almost hypocritical or ironic. So what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is when I see corporate HR types, management defense types, post, you know, Black Lives Matter material, or I think Tuesday or Wednesday, there was the Twitter blackout or the social media blackout. And you see people who defend corporations doing, you know, doing these blackouts, these symbolic protests, which, you know, in a way is not bad. You know, at least for some people like that, it's actually pretty good because some people in the um, in the greater HR work comp insurance world are more or less openly openly fascistic at this point. But you know, when you see some of these corporate liberals, you know, talking about in one breath, you know, Black Lives Matter, and then you know the next breath, oh hey, the Supreme Court just you know, approvingly of the Supreme Court raising the causation standards in the 1981 case. There's a disconnect there. 
but you know, but I mean, who knows? Maybe hypocrisy is the is the uh, tribute virtue plays device. I don't know, but you see those disconnections kind of the same way with the Trump response to the protesters in Washington D.C. Uh, this week, there was, uh, was Attorney General Bill Barr uh, ordered a tear gassing of protesters so the President Trump and Barr and a few others could get this uh, photo op uh, walking, you know, walking ominously across. So, I mean, and a lot, again, people that are in mean you kind of conventional liberals who, you know, defend management or in HR criticize Trump for doing that rightly and then at the same time we get blog you know we're, we get blog posts where hey yeah the Department of Justice is now prosecuting people for for COVID fraud or for forging work saying forging off work notes saying they had COVID so you know and in, in in one hand they're criticizing federal overreach or they're criticizing overly harsh law enforcement towards protesters and they're applauding, you know, you know, they're applauding the same, those same federal agencies for prosecuting people or, you know, charging people with criminal fraud related to uh, employees for uh, COVID. So again, there's a disconnect there. And, you know, part, part of me thinks that, um, that some of these employer types like the because that was that was in the news to this week too or last week that the FBI announced or not the FBI but a U.S. attorney in Georgia announced the criminal prosecution criminal charging of an employee who faked a an off work note who faked having COVID and caused a lot of expense to the to the employer but now that that's a federal charge and i think part of the reason that employers are bringing that out is because even before all of these um before all of these you know protests started arising towards towards the end of towards the end of may there was a lot of concern in management circles that unionization uh, was was coming back there's polls out there showing that younger workers in particular are much more favorably inclined towards labor unions mike elk of payday report did a good job of reporting on kind of wildcat strikes or walkouts and protests related to covid there's three in Nebraska. So so even before we had these protests that drew a lot of media attention, I think primarily for the property damage and for the dramatic footage of, you know, of tear gassing and rubber bullets, but there was a lot of protests and a little bit of civil unrest already going on this earlier this spring because of these strikes and protests over working conditions related to COVID. So, so there's, there's connections, there's connections there. Um, also here in Nebraska, 
it's interesting that it's some of the Black Lives Matter protests about the about the police brutality, you know, they, they, they talked about the treatment of immigrant packing house workers that particularly as related to COVID. So there's connections there. And because of the widespread nature of these protests, you know, normally protest is thought about is thought of as something an, an urban phenomenon, particularly in big, you know, left, you know, liberal cities, your New York, your Chicago's, Oakland, San Francisco, Los Angeles. But, you know, as I stated earlier in the show, I mean, here in Lincoln, Nebraska, we had we had violent protest. We we had the police shot tear gas at people. There's property lots of property damage. I mean, and the protests have spread into rural Nebraska. Uh, and that's where the that you know rural areas are where you know most you know rural areas and smaller cities is where the vast majority of meatpacking goes on. So in places where you have meatpacking, I'm not thinking of Grand Island, Nebraska. There's also been Black Lives Matter protests. I think maybe even there's been BLM protests in Lexington and there's Nebraska where Tyson's at. Grand Island, that's where JBS is, where, where one of the JBS plants are. So these protests are so widespread that they've gotten the Black Lives Matter protests or the civil or the George Floyd protests are so are so prevalent that they've gone into areas where you do have meatpacking. So somebody who, um, you know, maybe they work in a meatpacking plant or their parents work in a meatpack plant, meatpacking plant, you know they're going to these George Floyd protests. So there's a, and people that are going to the George, George Floyd protests in these rural areas are talking to people who are, you know, who are protesting in the conditions in the packing plants. So you're, you're seeing a kind of a merging of the two or a mixing of the kind of the two lines of protests. And finally, you know, as much as older people, and and I'll be 45 here in a few weeks, and maybe I'm getting into that older person category, but as much as you know, baby boomers and olders and even Gen Xers want things to go back to normal, I don't think things are, are going to go back to normal. And I'd have to say people that are younger, millennials, Gen Zers, normal is not good for them. And you know, maybe part of the reason that things were so bad for the younger generation is because people in the older generation, you know, just sat on their hands and were apathetic. And so finally, you know, if you've got younger people who are willing to protest continuously, you know, this is like a week and a half, people are willing to face tear gas or police batons to protest you know, they're going to be willing to organize in the workplace and stand up for themselves in the workplace. So I don't know if there's a going back to, if there's any going back to the status quo of the 1990s and the early 2000s. I, bluntly, I, ho- I hope there isn't. But at the same time, I hope that there's a positive outcome to all this energy and in all this unrest that elite that it go that it, it goes into a useful direction, not just 
you dissipating and maybe doing some, you know, cosmetic reforms, but that it, 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 it truly is transformative. So anyway, that's the podcast for this week. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you later. All right.